We interrupt this podcast with this important announcement. Last week's main article recommended Social Fixer. That recommendation stands, but those who started using Social Fixer in the past week will have seen ads that Social Fixer is intended to eliminate. Facebook routinely updates the code used to deliver content to users. It would almost seem that the intent is to break applications such as Social Fixer and FB Purity. In any event, by the middle of this week, Social Fixer had a promising new version in the hands of beta testers, and it may have been released by the time you hear this. The new version will be numbered 29.0, and your existing version 28 will be updated automatically depending on when the browser's extension store makes it available. And now back to our regularly scheduled podcast. It's TechBiter Worldwide with Bill Flynn. The latest on programs and policies, helpful hints, and a bit of occasional nonsense, all in more or less plain English. Podcast number 802 for the 22nd of July, 2022. This week, one monitor was sufficient around the turn of the century, but that's no longer the case for enterprise users, probably not for home users either. In short circuits, DuckDuckGo is all about privacy and security, but there is more. Is it enough to justify dropping Google's search engine? And if so, would you want to? A clever utility called What Runs is for website developers, but it might be something any website user could benefit from. And 20 years ago, only on the website, a proposed high-performance, low-power CPU dubbed Crusoe from Transmeta was running into headwinds in 2002. When a former employer offered two monitors to each computer user, a co-worker turned the offer down. Later, the employer insisted, and the co-worker grudgingly accepted a second monitor. About ten minutes after it was in place, he started kicking himself for refusing the first offer. Well, all right, not literally, of course, but he did realize how useful a second monitor can be. Even home users should consider whether a second or even a third monitor would make using the computer easier or more efficient. In the far distant past, big computer monitors had 16-inch diagonal measurements. Wow, 16 inches. Those cathode ray tubes ran hot. The monitors hogged the entire desk. They were incredibly heavy, 50 pounds or more. Most of us used just one or two programs at that time, but that has all changed. Today's monitors are less than an inch thick, emit little heat, and it's hard to find monitors that measure less than 18 inches diagonally. Fortunately, monitors that are good enough for all but high-end photo and video editing are available at very reasonable prices. That's why there are two 27-inch monitors on my desk, and I also use the 15-inch monitor built into the computer. How would you know if you need more than one monitor? If you have to minimize one application frequently to see another application, you're definitely a candidate. Or if you have to print calendars, schedules, and reference materials just so you can refer to them when you're using the computer, you probably need another monitor. 
The three screens I use are rarely as busy as what you'll see in the illustration on the TechBiter Worldwide website, but it is common for both of the external monitors to be busy, perhaps a text editor, an email program, and a browser on one screen, a separate browser window for reference on the second monitor, along with OneNote and perhaps Thumbs Plus. The third monitor has just a clock most of the time, but utility applications, additional reference materials, and even a motion picture can sometimes appear over there. The objective is to make frequently needed applications accessible without having to move or hide one of the other applications. That's why most businesses either issue all employees systems with two monitors or provide a second monitor to anybody who wants one. It makes sense for businesses where productivity is important, but it also makes sense for individuals. Some computers have connections for at least one external monitor, sometimes two, and there are hardware options for those who don't. Anybody who edits photos will soon discover that a second monitor helps a lot. Likewise, people who edit text and need to keep style sheets and reference materials in sight. When I use Adobe Lightroom Classic, I keep presets, profiles, adjustment tools, a film strip, and the reference image on the left monitor, that is my primary monitor. As a result, the image itself is relatively small, even on a 27-inch monitor. The right monitor can display a light table view with thumbnails of a lot of images, which is handy for sorting and organizing images, but it can also display a full screen or enlarged view that shows the image with all of its adjustments. Even those who don't consider themselves to be power users should consider how a second monitor might fit in. Perhaps the primary monitor would be used for email, Word, or Excel, but you'd like to keep an eye on Facebook or Twitter, or maybe you'd like to have a motion picture on that second screen. Seventeen years ago, PC World published an article called Tips and Tweaks. Two monitors are way better than one. And that probably wasn't the first article on the subject. Again, 17 years ago. So what about a huge single monitor? That's usually not a good solution because managing the placement of applications is tedious at best. With multiple monitors, it's much easier to retain control. I generally recommend against using the computer's built-in monitor and a single external monitor because size and resolution differences can be problematic. Current notebook computers have at least one DisplayPort or HDMI video port for an external monitor, and adapters that can convert that single output to two are inexpensive. A better option, though, is to use an adapter that connects to the Thunderbolt port if the computer has one. Then all you need to do is tell the computer a second monitor is attached. The computer will undoubtedly already tell you that a second monitor is attached, but you will need to tell the computer how you want to use it. Both Windows and Mac OS offer similar options. I'll be using Windows 11 to display the options here. The operating system will detect the monitors and provide a way for you to tell which is which. Windows displays numbers that are based on the order in which the monitors have been detected. Then you can drag them around so that they're side-by-side, side, matching the order they're in on the desk. To make one of the monitors the primary monitor, select it and then choose the Main Display option. This is also the settings panel you'll use to determine whether you'd prefer to extend the display onto each monitor or to duplicate the image from one monitor on another. 
The duplicate option is helpful for applications such as PowerPoint if you want to see what the audience is seeing. Note, though, that the better option for PowerPoint users is usually a special option that shows the presenter's notes on one screen and the display for the audience on the other. A second settings panel is used to change some of the advanced settings and whether the monitor is set up in tall or wide mode, also known as portrait and landscape. An advanced settings panel displays technical information about each of the monitors and also shows details about the device driver that's being used. Many motherboards have built-in video subsystems, but a lot of mid-range and high-end computers also have dedicated hardware and drivers. If you have more than one computer, make sure you purchase monitors that have multiple inputs and a way to switch between the inputs. Most monitors have at least two. The AOC monitors I've been using for nearly a decade have two HDMI ports, one DisplayPort port, and one old-style VGA port. The ports are all selected from the front panel. If you find these podcasts useful, and I hope you do, might you consider a donation? There are no ads here, and support from listeners is the sole source of income. It's easy. Just visit the website and click the Donate button near the top of any page. You can make a one-time donation or schedule a repeating donation every month. I thank you. And so does the cat. In short circuits, maybe you've tried the DuckDuckGo search engine, but you still use Google. Even though I'm somewhat illogically unconcerned about privacy and Google, there are reasons that I turn to DuckDuckGo first and use the Google search engine only when I have to. Google is the most commonly used search engine worldwide, but it does track you across the internet. As one who writes technology articles, I frequently have to search for goods and services that I would never consider buying. Yet, once I do, I start seeing ads for things I would never buy. This is not simply a coincidence. DuckDuckGo does not track you or collect data about you. Consider a search that I would never conduct on my own. Harley-Davidson Motorcycles 2022 both DuckDuckGo and Google instantly returned a lot of results for that search. If I wanted to buy a motorcycle, Google's results might have been marginally more useful because there are links to sections of Harley-Davidson's website and a map that shows Harley-Davidson dealers near me. The overall look and feel of the two search engines is more similar than different. One of the features I like in DuckDuckGo is that all of the search results are on a single page. Google returns one page of results. If you want to see more, you have to go to the next page, and the next page, and the next page. With DuckDuckGo, you just keep scrolling down. Okay, that's hardly a big deal, but I like it, and it gives me access to being able to see all of the results without having to flip back and forth from page to page. When DuckDuckGo returns ads, they will always be related to the current search, and they won't be disguised to look like normal responses. Instead, DuckDuckGo puts all of its ads in a separate column on the right. View them, click them, or ignore them. 
Ads can be turned off too, but I recommend leaving them on. If you are looking for a product or a service, those sponsored ads might be helpful. Google is better in at least two situations. If you're looking for images or if you don't know quite what you're looking for. Typing a few random bits of information into DuckDuckGo is much less likely to return what you're looking for. As for images, Google just simply seems to be more capable there. But you don't have to kick Google to the curb. Setting DuckDuckGo as the browser's default search engine doesn't mean it's the only search engine you can use. I start with DuckDuckGo, and it returns what I'm seeking most of the time. If it doesn't, I can perform the same search quickly in Google. I've been using DuckDuckGo as my default search engine for more than a year, maybe two. I still use Google sometimes, but I see no reason to switch back to Google as my primary search engine. So if you want to give DuckDuckGo a try, it's easy with most browsers, Microsoft Edge being the exception here. Most Chrome-based browsers, and probably all of them except Edge, allow the user to specify the default search engine on the Settings Search tab. Logical place, right? Likewise, Firefox has a Search tab in Settings. Go there and specify the default search engine. Vivaldi, the browser I use based on Chrome, has three default settings, one for most searches, one for searches in private windows, and a third for image searches. And then there's Edge. Open the Settings panel, choose Privacy Search and Services, scroll down to Address Bar and Search. You'll immediately see there is no way to change the default. Microsoft naturally defaults searches to Bing, but change is possible. Here's how. Start by opening DuckDuckGo.com and perform a search. Any search will do, doesn't matter. Then click the Settings icon, choose Privacy Search and Services, scroll to the bottom of the pane, and click the Expansion icon for Address Bar and Search. Then scroll all the way to the bottom of that window. Then you'll be able to specify the default search engine. It's always surprising just how much effort Microsoft developers expend just to make life more difficult for users. Most utilities designed for website developers have little perceived value for anybody else. What runs might be an exception to that rule. It's a browser plugin that shows which technologies support a website. The advantage to developers is clear. When you encounter a website designed with appealing techniques, the obvious question is, how did they do that? Although most website developers write some of their own code, virtually all modern websites depend on common underlying technologies. These range from WordPress and Bootstrap to Django and JavaScript. All browsers can reveal a website's source code, at least the parts that can be made visible. Details aren't obvious, though, and that's where this little free browser plugin helps. What runs reveals what powers a website. This includes apps that the developers pay for, the content delivery network they're hosted on, information about how they track visitors, plugins and fonts that have been installed, and more. If you want to know when a website developer makes changes, you can create a What Runs account that will send you a notification when a site you're following makes changes. 
To find out more about a specific service or technology, click the Know More icon, and What Runs will display information about the technology and list alternatives to that technology. It's also possible to view a list of customers who use the technology. Clicking the website icon will take you to the website that provides the technology or the service. For example, if you like the technique I use on the TechBiter Worldwide website to display larger copies of thumbnail images, you could click the website icon and then learn that it's called Pretty Photo from NoMarginForErrors.com. You would also learn that Pretty Photo is free to use and that it is released using the GPL v2 or Creative Commons 2.5 license. And if you want to use the technology on your website, you could acquire it from the NoMarginForErrors.com website. So designers can use what runs to keep an eye on competing sites, but what advantage might the average web user gain? Well, that's maybe a little more obscure, but the primary use I can think of for general website users would be to investigate a website with the objective of learning what runs it. Some technologies are more trusted than others, and the information might help users decide whether they want to use a site if the site uses technology they don't trust. Whether you use what runs or not, check out 20 years ago on the TechBiter Worldwide website. In 2002, a proposed high-performance, low-power CPU dubbed Crusoe from Transmeta was running into headwinds. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn. There's more on the website, techbiter.com, and if you have a question or a comment, use the contact link you'll find there. Stop by again next week for another session. <music> <laughs>